It is indeed, and nine minutes it is now after 8 p.m. And our thought leader on this Thursday uh, has worked as a senior policy analyst in uh, the policy unit in the presidency as a divisional director at uh, Umsobonvu Youth Fund, uh, as it was called then, uh, what is now the National Youth Development Agency. He's also edited books, including The Future We Chose, uh, Emerging Perspectives on the Centenary of the ANC, Sizonoba, Outliving AIDS in Southern Africa, and We Are No Longer at Ease, The Struggle for Fees Must Fall. And uh, he joins uh, me this evening as our thought leader. Uh, Busani, good evening to you and uh, welcome. Good evening, Ayabong, and thank you for inviting me. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you very much for taking time out to speak to us. Maybe, I guess, uh, as the f- former divisional director at uh, the Umsobonvu Youth Fund, uh, I mean, some of your thoughts on uh, uh, the process underway. I don't know if you've been following some of the interviews with the NYDA. Uh, if so, uh, w- what do you make of some of the candidates and I guess um, some of the questions that have been posed uh, uh, by uh, many of the members of that committee, uh, many of which are in relation, I guess, to the past performance of the entity? <laughs> Yeah, no, that's very <clears throat> uh, difficult and, and unfair. You know, I made a vow uh, <laughs> few years ago. You know that uh, I didn't want to be seen to be leaving from the from the craze. But look, the NYDA has come of age. Uh, they they've done very well in a certain respects. Uh, in other respects, they could have done better. But as a person who actually was involved in. Uh, I, I coordinated the merger of Umsomong Youth Fund and the and the National Youth Commission. So I partly take responsibility for some of the weaknesses in how we crafted the whole design of the NYDA. We could have drafted the NYDA Act better than it is uh, currently. Mm. Uh, but also the whole you know ecosystem of youth development in the country completely changed the post the creation of the national youth development agency. I was an employee of the president at the time in the policy unit, and I was having this responsibility of managing um, the major. And uh, as the case will be, you know, in, in government, you take someone like me who's never been involved in major acquisitions in the past, and you say. I must coordinate mm. a, a process like this one, and uh, there will always be uh, weaknesses. There were deadlines that were set, so we're chasing those deadlines. And I've, I did watch uh, some of the interviews. I think there are some uh, enterprising young people there. I think they, 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 I mean, the committee, I mean, with due respect, I think they are in trouble, uh, given the fact that there's uh, so many enterprising young people and the, how mm. you choose amongst. Mm amongst all of them must be a difficult um, a difficult task. And it's also a contested space. Uh, and so there will always be views about it. But uh, more significantly, Someone Youth Fund and the National Youth Commission existed in an ecosystem where there were strong, you know, youth formations were piling pressure on both organizations. There was a very strong South African Youth Council. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the mm-hmm. time of the merger, both of them had accumulated some, you know, capital, intellectual, um, intellectual capital, and so the NYTA today they exist in an environment where, for all intents and purposes, for all intents and purposes, uh, they were seen to be in a, a panacea, and they, you know, there has been some reversals in a way in terms of mainstreaming mm-hmm. youth development and making sure that everybody else takes responsibility. So if you talk to some 
you know, people in certain uh, institutions, if you talk about youth development, they will tell you about the NYDA, which is not the model of youth development uh, in South Africa and certainly globally. It was the ads, the National Development Policy Framework doesn't say, doesn't create an institution that is responsible entirely for youth development. But there's a room for improvement. I think the Mm -hmm. committee is asking some useful questions to the candidates about issues of legislation, the changes they could bring to bear, um, and it helps if there's pressure from outside as well. So all the best to the candidates who are going through the grueling process. Sure, sure, sure. And I guess, I mean, those, those experiences uh, uh, of merging Umsabomvu and uh, the National Youth Commission at the time uh, would have undoubtedly, I guess, prepared you for, for the role that you've taken on, uh, uh, both in the world of scholarship um, and some of the interests that you've driven you there and uh, also some of the work that you've done in the policy space. Um, and I'm quite interested in how you, you see those. I mean, uh, least of all in the context of uh, um, the South African government, successive administration's commitment to crafting a developmental state. And one of those things that people often speak about uh, when we speak about developmental states was their ability in the ideational realm to build some kind of uh, project that was hegemonic, that gave credibility to, to some of the measures that they've taken. Ha- have we been able to fight or create the space for something similar here? Uh, I'll, I'll say yes, yes or no. And, you know, uh, I mean, South Africa currently, I think, they are drowning, you know, in the <clears throat> news that are, you know, negative about what is not going going okay. But let mm-hmm. let me choose to talk about some of the things that have worked. But the problem, the crisis that's facing the state, apart from what we see on TV every day, is its inability to to package that which has worked and communicate it to the public and to the practitioners and everybody else uh, who cares. So I'll give you an example that, you know, in my early days when I joined the president from Umsawambu Youth Fund, if you read the pages of the of the Sowetan, you know, the, the, you know and all other newspapers, and at some point the Sowetan for about six months was featuring the tragedy of service delivery of, of home affairs and there were stories every day just as in the mm, daily, daily sun there were stories of the Togolosha in the Sowetan for six months if not more they were telling stories of the tragedy of service delivery at, uh, at home affairs and the department came to age and in a sense if you look back you can say here is an instance where statecraft was mastered to the extent that there was a newspaper, and all of them, actually, I'm just using this one as an example, but even certainly on this show on Metro FM, where I mean, people who, who are hosting the show that we are hosting today yes. more than a decade ago, the people who were calling me would call up the complaints at home affairs, either the, their IPs were wrongly, you know, you know captured, uh, and many other horrible stories that were going on. And mm. the department came of age. And there's been scholarly, you know, research that has been produced on how the government department that was hated by all today can produce an ID and a passport, can actually produce a birth certificate whilst when the child is a day old, one day mm. old, mm. and a birth certificate is being is being produced. And those are signs 
that in fact there has been a mastering of statecraft, and it has happened in many others. The weakness, however, is that that then doesn't get packaged and uh, communicated to the public to the extent that the public knows that in fact, whilst there are horror stories in some instances, there are instances where there are best practice where, where there are best practices. You know. Um, I mean, apart from some of the recent problems people uh, have seen around the uh, UIF, we all can agree that in the first 60 days of the lockdown, people who were able to process UIF claims, blue-collar workers and white-collar workers, they did so using electronic means to apply. There were no long queues in uh, in UIF centers. And I'm mentioning this because it is one of those examples where UIF as an institution had many problems for many years, but they have been progressively advancing their ability to process claims just by introducing technology, by sharpening the business processes. And the business process is important because you need to know what happens when a person, when a claim is submitted to a Mm. point where the claim is paid, those processes must be clearly must be clearly outlined. So there are those pockets within the state. I can confirm that because I have experienced those. And obviously there are those where you go to a customer service center, they tell you the system mm-hmm. uh, the system is down or they give you an attitude yeah. or you go through just a horrible experience. Busani, I, wa- I want us to pause here for a second and uh, we're going to take a quick spot break now. But uh, when we come back, uh, I want us to, to talk about supply chain management just across the state because... Uh, uh, I certainly welcome, uh, um, you know, uh, some of your observations around home affairs uh, and around the improving capability in certain business processes of the UIF and, and other institutions as well. And uh, we hope uh, that uh, SASA, as it pays out the special COVID-19 grant as well, uh, will be able to bolster the kind of capacity that we saw lost to it uh, during the debacle uh, with NetOne and CPS. Uh, but when we come back, um, I, I want to talk maybe about some of your own experiences of what we're learning or not learning when it comes to our supply chain management and our procurement systems uh, and uh, this back and forth between decentralization and maybe trying to, as uh, the finance minister was saying, uh, now try and centralize the issues to avoid some of the uh, uh, instances of corruption that we've heard about. So let's take this break and when we come back, we'll continue. 22 minutes it is after 8 p.m. It's our Thought Leader Thursday segment, and uh, we joined uh, for this particular one by a former senior policy analyst uh, in the policy unit in the presidency and now the head of the National School of Government and uh, somebody who cut uh, his teeth uh, very early on uh, with uh, the likes of Omsobovu Youth Fund and uh, also hoping I can ask him some questions about Kazlam uh, in the next few minutes or so. But before we get to that, uh, we were talking about some of the successes of our system, and I want us maybe to, to hone in on one uh, clearly apparent and uh, um, you know a failure that uh, certainly is never shy or, or short of people to pick up on and uh, and uh, uh, take into the public discourse, and that's in our procurement systems. From your observations, um, sort of having been in the system, I guess for for as long as you have, your your views on the procurement system and the debates around how we do procurement better. Uh, in a way that is able to obviate, uh, you know, some of the impulses uh, of uh, wasteful and irregular expenditure and uh, corruption as well. You know, Ibonga, this is a very sore point for <clears throat> for many, uh, 
for many reasons, you know, besides the the money that get lost, you know, at a different level, it's a sore point because it's one issue that delegitimizes the the, the state and the authority of the state, and it creates so much uh, heartache, you know, to the people of, uh, of of South Africa. But there's a number of reasons why we've got problems in the procurement uh, system. There will be individuals. <clears throat> who are corrupt, and they will use the weaknesses in the system and the weaknesses in individuals in order for them to scheme and scam the state and be able to siphon the money. So that is at the level of the individuals, you know, where people will blend or opportunistically they will see opportunities and scam, and scam the system. There are also problems that are systemic in a sense that, and you, as you'll see in one case in the Western Cape, where the judge says the agency was orchestrated, was a forced one, that you could, you could have planned better in order for you not to be able to use this emergency procurement um, arrangement. And there was, there's already a judgment on that on a former you know, uh, official in, mm. uh, in, 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 in a municipality. Those are systemic you know, problems that we have. But the, over and above the, system, the, the human, uh, the systemic, we need to just accept that in society, to deal with corruption, you can tighten the system, you can change the rules, you can change the laws, and then whatever, maybe even take the whole of Harvard faculty or even a whole accounting firm. And I mean, maybe that's a wrong example. We know what accounting firms have done to this country in the past, in the past few years. It's also a societal matter. To the extent that society doesn't get outraged, when people do wrong things, mm. even if it was, even if the leakage is a liter in a sea of, you know, resources that we have, it then becomes a problem. So in order to deal with supply chain problems, you yes, you must train people so that they, they know how. Because in some instances, people make mistakes on the basis of them not mastering the craft that they are making. Because they might have been trained as accountants, but they were not trained in supply chain management processes of the state. Sure, so there's a lot sure. you must do in terms of training people to know exactly how to chair a bid committee. People must know that if you have to, if you're chairing a bid committee, there are basic things that must happen. If there's a 10-point checklist, you must make sure that you've gone through all of those, that you've gone through all of those things. So that you must give them the technical expertise you must build systems, especially ICT systems. You must de-risk the people such that they don't have these temptations that they will eventually have that makes them vulnerable for the system. But at the level of society, because the people who corrupt us as public servants, it's those people who are outside, who are planning, who see the weaknesses, who will then approach us and hope mm, that uh, mm. we, we, are vulner- we are vulnerable enough. There are people, you know, I, I used to, you know, study some of the reports done by various institu- institutions that are studying security, that there will be a guy who will target a vulnerable teller in a supermarket and work on her for 12 months and will eventually end up having a relationship with that person. After 12 months, and the, the lady is now comfortable, she's got a boyfriend, a loving fellow, and all that the fellow is there is to study and to recognize sense of how the cash is managed in a particular supermarket. Eventually, oh, recognize until 12 months. 
they will be yeah well they i mean whatever the period whatever the period uh, whatever the period may be but eventually mm. they will then move in and they will be able to you know pounce and and you know do a heist and steal cash and so on so it happens because there are those people outside the state who are either rent seeking and they will be looking for vulnerable people which is important that you must de-risk the people as well as the system or they are those who are just chance takers. They see a chance, they see, I mean, like the people who do smash and grab. There's a lot of smash and grab in the supply chain system where in a, in a, in a traffic set light, the guys who do smash and grab, it's not that they are always waiting for a white BMW. In some instances, they will see someone on a cell phone and they know that this person is not paying attention and they do the smash and, they do the smash and grab. So you've got your smash and grab type of people who are pouncing on their weaknesses in the supply chain system and we have people who then are planning in a very systematic way for it. I was part of a team that was uh, organizing the 2010 World Cup. We were not making mm. procurement decisions in the president. But in many instances, the companies who end up being fined, these are companies who hired engineers and accountants, and they schemed and they scammed over a sustainable period of time. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the chain takers who do smash and grab, you know, and break a window and, and smash and grab on the system. We also have the highly qualified people who can scam the system and they plan for it over time, and that is what is called organized crime. So you mm. must then have an overhaul of the supply chain management system, looking at number of variables, including society that must have uh, demonstrated sufficient outreach against those who are corrupt, such that in certain places uh, in China, when they see someone driving a Ferrari and they know it's a government official, they spit on that person. Mm. And I guess, I mean, I mean, this, this is for me very intimately related to uh, some of the other issues I wanted to touch on when it comes to emerging culture. I mean, I was saying to Robert Marawa yesterday that uh, I took some time on the weekend to, to watch what was happening at the Gravel Racecourse, which is the, the Durban July, and probably not happening to the kind of fanfare uh, we often see year in, year out. But my observation was that we don't, we don't look upstream. So, so, so we look at the fanfare, we look at the nice clothes, Chonganjichuish, uh, without really understanding that there's an entire ecosystem of owners, of stable uh, managers, of stable owners, and people who make so much money. I mean, in one race, I saw there was one owner, or one stable, that had about four horses in the same race, which uh, boosts, I guess, the, the prospects of winning that particular race, but they're able to build a big money strategy on the back of that. Um, you've written quite a bit about, I guess, uh, some of the... Uh, conspicuous consumption and uh, the social and moral and ethical conundrums that that raises. Let's maybe talk about that. Okay. You know, I was telling a colleague uh, uh, something which the colleague thought was, I, was being, I was being controversial. It's very important that in our study of uh, society, and unfortunately in South Africa post the transformation that has taken place in the higher education sector, in fact, more appropriate, the restructuring that took place post the merger was that there was a systemic, you know, um, you know, closures of uh, departments uh, mm. and schools that were studying sociology. Uh, in fact, my own critique is that uh, departments of pop- political science became 
public administration, uh, you know, development studies uh, itself was like public administration, you study government and local government and so on. And as a result, there are many things happening in South African society and elsewhere which we do not understand because there is no detailed and deeper study of society and social trends that are happening in society. So I was saying to this colleague that at macro level, so nationally, when the people see what they see in national uh, media and they listen to Metro FM, their news every hour, and the news are about someone who got a billion and the billion might have been inappropriately got it and all of those things. At a micro, at a street level, the lumpen sees that thing and the lumpen needs to survive. Mm. Or even just an ordinary person on the street. They would mimic that which they see being done by leadership or the people who are prominent. But at a local level, they will the looting manifest differently. So it might manifest by forging the application to get 350. This is all of it, it's forgery, it's cookery. But at that level, it's all about 350. At a macro level, it's about 350 million. At a local level, it's someone who may be unemployed, but may be in a four-roomed house, long lost a job, and mm. it's got 10 back, house, back rooms, and therefore the person is unable to prove that the person has, might have uh, income because the person collects cash, and the person goes and registers to end the grant of 350 and food parcels and everything else. So, you know, this is like a, a, a carnival, you know, where they say the body is a consumer because we eat, but also the body is consumed. And it's a carnival where the human or the, the body itself, it's actually the same thing that, the, 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 that uh, you know, is part of a manifestation of modernity. It's the same thing that colonialists did, where they take... Um, uh, you know, such a bad man and go and display her uh, in Paris. We are doing the same with conspicuous consumption today. We're doing the same way of body display. Because here is a body that must come and display it at the July, uh, you know, for us to marvel at and we consume. And the issue, though, is that there's a political economy to it. A political sure. economy that occasioned the display of the racial-based, you know, the prejudice around Saki Batman and all of those things manifest uh, even uh, uh, today in a different context because it's about subjugating the native and in particular it's about subjugating the black woman because by and large, the body that is, that is a consumer and being consumed in society today is that of a black woman. So these mm. are young girls who end up, you know, you know, being paraded and so on, you are not going to have the spectacle that you see at the July or at the JNP match and everywhere else. If someone said, no, women mustn't be there, or at least women below the age of certain age mustn't, uh, mustn't, mustn't be there. And the thing is, and part of the critique I always make, we have people in South Africa who parade as revolutionaries. They employ all revolutionary rhetoric so that mm. they become respectable and so on. But the very same 
who even hate certain South Africans who own wealth and so on. But there is no consistency between the revolutionary rhetoric and their consumption pattern. So you want to say you hate white monopoly capital, but you want to wear Louis Vuitton because it's mm-hmm. owned by the same. There's a, there's a contradiction in terms, and you need to be able to explain that. Uh, I mean, I suppose uh, one former boss of mine made a joke uh, and said, you know, the uh, the, the communists, once uh, when they were drinking some fine wine, they say, yeah, let's have a drink. And they then made a toast that says, may the best drinks uh, be enjoyed by the workers through the lips of their leaders. Hmm. It's, a, it's a fundamental problem. If we must show democratic indifference by basking in the glory of democracy and we enjoy it as leaders, uh, and then the masses are not enjoying it. That is what I call democratic indifference. Because we are, the workers are enjoying the, the fine wine, but yeah. through the lips of their leaders. It, it, it's fundamentally a problem in society. Yeah, it's a, it, it sounds like more like uh, the proxies must govern rather than the people governing, uh, if we go back to some of the, the founding statements. Maybe, Busani, before we let you go, unfortunately, we, we're nearing and running out of time, probably got the last three minutes or so. But... As we speak about all of these things, they certainly engender a certain social, moral, uh, and uh, political character to the public service, to the bureaucracy, and many of those who staff and man uh, posts in the public service. You work at the National School of Government now. Uh, with all that you've told us, I mean, how, how do you respond to that context, and how do you see the response of the National School of Government um, and uh, its own pedagogy in being able to confront some of these challenges uh, that are facing many of those who man the public service. Yeah, that is a, a challenge facing the National School of Government. Um, firstly, the national, um, you know, the, in terms of the seven national priorities, state capacity is now number one priority, which means a, a government department that previously had a low profile is suddenly thrust into the limelight because there are great expectations that we are going to re-engineer uh, how we build the capacity of the state. Our our thinking at the National School of Government is that we must convert the public servants or we must look at the public servants as if they were pilots. If we said public servants were pilots or at least they were, they were crew members, what then follows is that Pilots and members of the crew are required by their craft to go back to the simulator on regular occasions. You will use your flying license, you'll use your license as a cabin crew member if you don't return to the simulator. What I mean by this is if we agree that we must become CSF as pilots, especially all those who are senior. It means that we go back to the simulator because the conditions are changing all the time. The skills requirements are changing. There is currently digital transformation taking place within government because of COVID and all of us must still deliver services but using digital platforms and so on. If you don't take people back into the simulator, you it means that most of them will lose their, their trading license. So as part of professionalizing the public service, we then say, we're then saying it is time that we must make Skilling and reskilling fashion sexy again, 
everybody must return to the simulator because in, uh, in after the 9-11, the, the, the SOP for flying changed. After Ebola, the SOP for flying from uh, West Africa changed. With COVID, the SOP is no longer the same because we need mm. members of crew who are able to identify that Ayabonga might potentially have Ebola, Ayabonga might potentially have an object which may detonate and may blow up this aircraft, or that person might actually have COVID, which may create a problem for everybody who's flying. That is why the city of the back is reserved, so that the crew can take you and isolate you at the back. If public servants, we took a similar attitude to training them, to giving them the ability to be able to be responsive, to be have a good uh, qualities of relating with their, their customers, because cabin crew, they will tell you that it's not about chicken or beef. Primarily, they are there for safety and so on, so they mm. need to be multi-skilled in the work that they do. So the National School of Government, we are encouraging public servants, all of them, and in particular those who are senior to return to the simulator. By the way, we're not only responsible for public servants, people who are on the payroll, sure. we're also responsible for political office bearers. So there are exciting programs will be rolling out very soon on economic governance, for example. Mm. And our theory is very, is very basic. You, we must be able in the next few years to measure the quality of decisions made by those who hold executive positions mm. by the extent to which the outcomes of their decision have a positive impact on the socioeconomic well-being of South Africa. And that is how then we are creating our sure. own theory of how we must uh, deliver programs that are responsive, that are game-changing in the, in the, in the public service. But training sure. is but one of it. We must deal with the whole overhaul of a, mm, of, a, of, a, mm. of 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 the system. I saw a sure. report lastly uh, circulating on social media last week, which says there were municipalities that spent millions hiring, uh, you know, lawyers to do legal work. For- 17 minutes it is before 9 p.m. You'll have to pardon us there, and uh, I guess going back to the analogy, uh, Busani, you were you were painting there. Uh, I must say, I'm flying uh, this particular plane uh, without some of my alerts. Uh, so uh, I wouldn't say I'm flying blind, but I must say I'm flying without some of my alerts. So my apologies uh, for dashing into that uh, into that advert there. But uh, you are still making the point about uh, some of uh, what you're seeing in the municipalities uh, in uh, in closing there. Yeah. No, I think if we want to professionalize the public service, and I'm picking on one example, it is said that in some municipalities, and it happens in all the government departments and all spheres, they employ people with legal training with legal degrees qualifications and they still spend so much money though outsourcing work to lawyers outside how does it happen that you employ people you even give them allowances called special occupation specific dispensation which means you pay them Mm. more than what ordinarily people will earn at that level and they outsource all the work so part of what we want we are proposing actually going forward uh, we will be taking it through the cabinet system and also through public consultation there are certain categories of work in the public service where you mm-hmm. should not be employed there unless you have a license. You cannot be employed as a senior legal uh, officer in government unless we are, we are an admitted attorney or you are a junior counsel. You should not be sure. employed as a town planner unless we are registered or you should not be employed mm-hmm. as an engineer unless we are registered. Because this thing called consulting fees in government, by the way, is this professional fees. We employ people who have a PSC engineering 
and the B, you know, LLB and so on, but they sure. are not admitted or recognized in their profession. So if you mm, want to professionalize, mm. bring people so that they are the ones who must sign those drawings sure, and not sure. pay a million rent to someone only to sign the drawing. Okay. So it's part of the game-changing right. thing that we'll be introducing. Sure, yeah. sure. Bozani, we'll have thank to leave you, it man. there. And uh, thank you very much for taking time out to speak to us this evening for our Thought Leader Thursday segment. That there was uh, Bosani Ngaweni uh, speaking to us. He's the head of the National School of Government and uh, speaking to us about some of the work that's happening there and also some of the reforms we should and ought to be thinking about in the public service.